All right, so the story of batteries is like tapping into the Holy Spirit. If you don't have batteries, you can't tap into power. And now that I have the power, we can tap into the power of the Holy Spirit. Ah, always do a sound check before the sermon begins. And so first application of our Sunday. Well, what I learned is that when I am traveling, uh, sometimes when I'm stuck in traffic like that, uh, I will actually get off the highway and I'll go 10 miles out of my way if I have to, just to be moving because I do not want to sit in traffic. And so for me, sometimes the shortest way home is not always the best way home. And, and so sometimes the long way home is the best way home. And Paul and Barnabas found that the long way home was the best way home as well from this first missionary journey. You know, Paul and Barnabas, uh, they took the long way home, but it wasn't to avoid traffic. It was because they had a lot of uh, encouraging and strengthening to do uh, on their way home from this first missionary journey. And so uh, first we're going to see that disciples need encouraging and strengthening. And as we look at that uh, second half of verse 20, it says, the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby. And you'll remember that Paul had just been stoned in Lystra, uh, left for dead. He walked back into the city and preached there some more, uh, probably did some more evangelism, probably made some more converts. And then the very next day, uh, he went off to uh, Derby. And Derby was some 60 miles uh, south uh, east of, um, of where he was in Lystra. You can see it on the map here. There's Lystra and there's Derby following the blue line. And so that's about as far east as he got in the, uh, in the province of Galatia, the, the, as easternmost as he ever got. And uh, it was probably about a three-day walk uh, from Lystra where he was. Uh, and so when he got there, verse 21 says that uh, after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. So he's in Derby and he's there preaching and he's making more disciples on this trip. Uh, after he had gotten there. And that's great news. Luke doesn't report any opposition that he had faced uh, in Derby, And so uh, apparently the Jews who followed him to Lystra, they either still thought he was dead or perhaps they didn't know where he went if he was alive, but he appears to be uh, unimpeded in his ministry in Derby. And so as we think about Paul and we think about his opponents, uh, a principle that I want us to think about is that we have to be more zealous than our adversaries. Uh, if you've ever watched a football game or a basketball game and you see one team get out to a very big lead, uh, their coach may be interviewed at halftime or at the end of the game, and the coach may say something like, yeah, we didn't match their intensity in the beginning of the game, or, or we were not as prepared as we should have been, or, or the other team seemed to want it more than we did. And, and that was always true of Paul and Barnabas. Uh, these guys were really unstoppable. Uh, you, they could chase them all over Asia. Uh, they could stone Paul. Uh, they could do any number of things to them, but they could never take their zeal away from them. They were more zealous than their adversaries. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, for when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And that's a commission, of course, that came straight from Jesus. So the only way they were ever going to stop Paul was to kill him, and it was not his time to die yet. So he was going to continue to go about uh, preaching the gospel wherever he was. And, and we know uh, from Paul's letters uh, that he was a very intense and very persistent person. Uh, and so nothing was going to stop him. And so uh, 
us is, are we as zealous as Paul was? And I'll speak for myself, no, I'm not as zealous as Paul was. I'd like to be, but I'm not as zealous as Paul was. But if we are going to save souls, we have got to be more zealous than our adversaries because they're always going to be there trying to shout us down. So let's ask God that we would love people more. The more we love people, the more we will be concerned about their souls and the more zealous for them we will be. And then we will be more willing to preach the gospel to them, even though we may be opposed. Well, after they left Derby, verse 21 says that they returned to Lystra and Iconium and uh, to Antioch. And so what do we see there? From Derby, uh, let's look at this map. From Derby here, they were only... 160 miles from Tarsus right there, which is Paul's hometown. It would, have been, it would have taken him maybe seven or eight days just to walk home for some much needed rest and relaxation. And I wonder if they debated, should we go home or should we go back to where we came? And the text doesn't tell us anything about that. It just says that they turned and they went back through the cities uh, that they came from. They turned around and went right back the way they came. And so uh, what this tells me is that we must put the needs of others above our own personal needs and desires. And making new disciples and then leaving them to their own devices is like putting somebody on a raft and giving them a gallon of water and saying, good luck, sail across the Pacific Ocean with that. Uh, It'll take them about five minutes before the sea overtakes them, right? And they will be lost. Uh, That is no way to, to send somebody across the ocean. And it's no way to make disciples either. Uh, Paul knew from his own experience that new disciples need training. They need to be taught. And that's why Paul himself went to Arabia for a period of three years after his conversion in chapter 9 to be taught specifically by the Lord uh, the things that he was going to need for the ministry and the mission that he had been entrusted with. And so rather than go home, Paul and Barnabas retraced their steps uh, going back to the place, the very places where they had made disciples, but also where they had suffered vicious and extreme uh, persecution. That's sacrificial love. They missed the people that they had known back home. And they had already been gone from home a long time. They were tired physically from the travel and from the beatings they took. And they're tired emotionally and spiritually from all this opposition that they're constantly facing. And yet they retrace their steps going back to strengthen these guys who need their help. And so we read in verses uh, 22 and 23 that they went back strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. And so they did three important things for these disciples as they traveled back through these cities again. The first thing they did was they strengthened their souls. The word for strengthen doesn't necessarily mean physical strength. It means to uh, give them a further strength and resolve mentally uh, to overcome the things that they were going to face. Strengthening commitment or or resolve to remain true uh, to what they had been taught. And And so this probably means that Paul and Barnabas went back, uh, giving them further instruction, teaching them more about this Christian life and preparing them intellectually for the debates and for the persecution that they were going to face for the the truths that they would speak. And so what I have come to know, and uh, one of the ways that I was saved, was that most people who come to faith 
have to have their intellectual objections answered. And that was true of me. It may be true of many of you. And it's true for the world. They, they want to have their questions answered. And Christianity has answers for any challenge that the world can bring. But the challenge for us is, is getting somebody who will listen objectively and honestly to the truths of Christianity uh, so that we can give them the truth and, and tell them that their objection has a reasonable answer to it. And all we can do is to be prepared. We have to be prepared to give an answer, right? And if they don't listen, it's not our fault. The Holy Spirit is the one who has to prepare hearts to hear the truth. And the Holy Spirit, if the, if the Holy Spirit doesn't prepare that heart, it's not going to be able uh, to hear. I'm sure many of you who have come to Christ later in life heard the truth many times before you actually received it. Why is that? Because the Holy Spirit hadn't yet prepared your heart. And once your heart was prepared by the Holy Spirit, now the truth that you hear makes perfect sense. And that wasn't always true uh, for you. So if the Holy Spirit doesn't prepare hearts, then we won't make disciples. But that's no excuse for us not to be prepared to make disciples. We always have to be prepared. We should always be reading our Bibles. We should always, uh, when we come to passages that we don't understand, uh, there are so many resources out there that can help us to understand difficult passages. And so commentaries and uh, other resources online or other Christians who uh, might be further along on their walk might be able to help you understand a passage like that. Uh, Peter said that we must always be prepared to give a defense, right? And, and the word defense there in the Greek is apologia. And it's, it sounds like apology in, in English, but it's where we get our word apologetics from. And apologetics is just the science or the, the art of being able to make a defense uh, to objections that we will uh, encounter as Christians. And so uh, we'll see that even next week in chapter 15 as, as uh, the, the question is going to be, well, don't you have to be circumcised and follow the law in order to be saved? That was the question in Paul's day. In our day, we have totally different questions than that, right? Uh, how can God allow evil? How can God send loving people to hell? Don't all, say all religions point to one God. Is there any proof of the resurrection? These are all apologetic questions, and we should all be able to have some basic knowledge, be able to answer these questions a little bit, not only so that we can answer other people's objections, but having answers to these questions will strengthen our own faith as we do the, the research and, and we find out for ourselves that, yeah, there really is a good answer to that. I'd never thought of that before, and I, my faith is made stronger by knowing. So Paul and Barnabas strengthened these disciples. And then the next thing they did was they encouraged them. You see it there in the second half of verse 22. They said, look, we, Paul and Barnabas, have been persecuted all along the way. And, and that means you're going to be persecuted too. It's all part of the Christian life. Uh, their return through these Galatian cities seemed to be more about discipleship, strengthening and encouraging new believers than actually uh, making new believers, about evangelism. And of course, evangelism is very important, obviously, but, but so too is discipleship. And sometimes that gets neglected, the, the need to build up believers. And, and new Christians need encouragement. They need to be prepared for the trouble that they will face. And they need to understand that becoming a Christian doesn't mean your life is going to necessarily be easier. In fact, oftentimes, uh, it means that you're going to have more problems. And that's why Paul said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 
through many tribulations, we'll enter the kingdom of God. And, and Paul could preach this message. Why? Because he lived this message. Let's take a couple of examples. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia. Realize that he's in Asia during this first missionary trip. That we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and he will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. And this famous uh, passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says he was beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Uh, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times shipwrecked. A night and day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Folks, this is not the prosperity gospel, right? This is not the prosperity gospel. Uh, so many of our churches now in America are, are what are called seeker churches or prosperity gospel preaching churches. And there's a pretty big one down in Houston that you're all very familiar with, right? They take verses out of context and they, they, they give them a new meaning. Uh, they give people a message that tickles their ears. It's a message that people want to hear, but it's not the message that people need to hear. What they get is a lie, and, and what they get is, is a message that doesn't prepare them for the things that are coming. They put on a big show, and they put out a watered-down version of the gospel, uh, but when uh, they have to deal with life's crises, they are not ready. There's no preparation for the, the suffering that is a part of Christian life. I was talking to somebody who uh, had a, uh, an experience, a, a new Christian, and he was... Uh, uh, reading a lot of teaching from prosperity preachers, and what he said was he, he had actually had an inappropriate uh, sexual encounter with a female, and he thought that because uh, he was now a new Christian and had the Holy Spirit, that he could not get a sexually transmitted disease. And that is what you get in uh, prosperity gospel preaching churches. And so we have to be grounded in the truth. We have to be rooted in the truth. There is going to be suffering, but these churches... Uh, they teach things that tickle our ears. They give us the idea that we are going to be healthy and happy uh, all the time. Uh, it, it's a loving God who gives us nothing but grace without penalty, consequence, or judgment for our sin. And folks, that's not what the Bible teaches. And I know in your own experience, that's not been your life experience either, right? There is consequences. There is suffering that, that takes place uh, as a result of sin. But people who attend those churches, are not prepared when they actually face the real crisis of life. And they become disillusioned because they think from this kind of preaching that when you become a Christian, life is a bed of roses. There's nothing but prosperity that's coming our way. But sometimes it's actually just the opposite. And that's what Paul was trying to communicate to these guys as, as he's strengthening them and saying, look, 
It's through many tribulations that we are going to enter the kingdom of God. So, a believer, you will enter the kingdom of God, but it will not be without many tribulations. And I know that you know that from your own lives, because your Christian life, I'm sure, has not been easy 100% of the time. So, Paul and Barnabas wanted to teach these guys by uh, strengthening them, encouraging them, and then uh, he wanted to appoint elders over them. We see that's the third thing that he does here, appointing elders in every church. A church needs some level of organization, right? And the bigger it comes, uh, it becomes, the more organization it's going to need. Uh, but Paul and Barnabas knew that they were not going to be there to guide these new believers along in every single city that they went to. And so uh, he appointed elders to, to govern the people, but also to teach the people. And most likely these elders had already been elders in the synagogues that they had been a part of before they had become Christians. They had experience. They were leaders of men as it was already, but now they're leaders of men with the, the proper truth. And so Paul and Barnabas appointed them with prayer and with fasting. And so we see again in Acts the, the necessity of, of a prayerful church in order for, for that church to be successful and to be, have prayer be an essential component of the faith. And after praying, they commended these elders to the protection of the Lord. You know, the word commended means to entrust for safekeeping. And so uh, a question for us uh, how often do we pray to the Lord and then we don't entrust him with our prayer? You know, this is something that happens to me all the time. I don't know if this happens to you. I'm really worried about something. I go to the Lord in prayer uh, and then I get up and I start worrying about the very thing that I was just praying about all over again, right? I have not entrusted him with my prayer. I've prayed it, but I haven't laid it there at the foot of the cross, right? And left it there. And that's what we have to do. We need to we need to understand that we have a God who hears. Uh, we need to trust that he has a plan. And, and, and if for some reason he's not answering your prayer immediately, it's because he's got something better in store for you. And that's what we need to know. And so we have to entrust for safekeeping, whatever it is that we are laying before the Lord. We, we take our burdens to the cross and we leave those burdens there. So we see disciples need encouraging. Disciples need strengthening. Disciples need uh, prayer. Uh, here's the second thing. Disciples need rest and refreshment as we come to the second half of the passage. Uh, this really applies more to Paul and Barnabas than it does to these disciples that they're making, but uh, they decided that they were going to go back through these cities, and then when they get to Antioch, it's supposed to be a time of rest and refreshment. So let's read uh, verses 24 through 28. They passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had accomplished. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And he had spent a long time with the disciples. So you can follow their route home on this map. And I realize that it might be confusing because we have two Antiochs in this passage. This here is Pisidian Antioch, and this is Antioch where they were originally sent from. So this blue line is the one that is tracing their steps home from Derby to Lystra to Iconium to Pisidia Antioch. They come down to Perga. Remember, uh, in chapter 13, uh, Paul didn't preach the gospel there in Perga, probably because of some illness that we spoke about a couple weeks ago. But here, he actually gets to preach in Perga, although it doesn't say anything about what the results were. 
and then after Perga, they go down to Italia, which is the port, and they get on a boat there, and they sail across the Mediterranean Sea until they come to Seleucus, and then from there, they're on foot uh, back to Antioch. And they're back to their sending church, and what an incredible, joyous time it must have been to come back to their sending church and to report all the incredible things that God had done on this journey. Think about the converts that they had made. Think about the persecution that they had survived, and, and yet God is working the entire time. And it is a blessing uh, for any sending church to hear about the wonderful things that, uh, that the Lord has done through the mission that, that we have sent people on. So uh, we're going to have a, a time in a couple of weeks when uh, Philip and Gabriella Gibson are going to come back and they're going to spend time among us and we're going to hear all the wonderful things that, have, that, that God has been doing through them uh, in their mission field. And so we'll look forward to that uh, in a few weeks. Uh, but Paul said that God opened a door for the Gentiles when he was preaching. And that is a uh, metaphor that Paul uses quite frequently uh, in his letters. Uh, here's a few examples. In 1 Corinthians 16.9, he says, I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective service has been opened for me and there are many adversaries. 2 Corinthians 2.12, I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ and a door was opened for me in the Lord. And Colossians 4.3, pray at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the word. What these passages have in common, these three in our passage in Acts here, is that it's God who is opening this door, right? We pray that God will open a door for effective service. Our job is to walk through those open doors. And the only way we're going to, to see these open doors is to constantly be on the lookout for them, to be seeking them. It's, it's so easy to walk through life with our heads down and walking to where we're going and not really thinking about anything else, but if we're looking around with our heads up, looking for opportunities, that's where open doors are found. Uh, Paul found so many open doors because he was constantly seeking open doors and, and ways that he could minister to people, uh, loving the Lord. So as you know, we have been continually praying here that the Lord would open here a wide door for effective service and ministry for us to this new neighborhood in Garland. And so I urge you to continue to pray that the Lord would open doors. We, we want to be his hands and feet here. And the only way that's going to happen is if we pray for open doors, we find, seek these open doors, and we walk through them as God opens them for us. So Paul spent a lot of time in Antioch with his disciples. And I'm sure it was a time of rest and refreshment for Paul. There's no place like home. Uh, most scholars think that this first missionary journey took anywhere from a year up to even two years to complete, and then that he spent a year in Antioch uh, getting rested and refreshed after that period of time. But during that year, Paul received reports in Antioch about how his churches in Galatia were doing, and he did not like what he heard. And what he knew was that disciples need sound doctrine, right? They need to be strengthened and encouraged. And disciples need rest and refreshment, but they need sound doctrine as well. Uh, most scholars agree that Paul wrote this letter to Galatians during this year that he spent in Antioch uh, resting and, and being refreshed. Uh, and you'll remember that Paul had appointed elders to lead these churches, but in no time at all, uh, people that he called Judaizers, heretics, came into those churches and started preaching a false gospel. And so I want to look uh, at what happened there. So uh, if you're carrying Bibles, I want you to turn forward to Galatians chapter 1. We're going to take a look at what happened 
uh, in these Galatian churches. And we'll look at verses uh, 6 to 8. Here's what Paul said, uh, writing from Antioch. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which really is not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And so what is it? What is this false gospel that Paul was hearing was being preached uh, in these cities? Well, some, in, some believing Jews, these are, these are Jews who had believed in Jesus Christ now. They had infiltrated the church, and now they're teaching that you, you can believe in Jesus Christ, but you also have to keep the law, and you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. They're adding works to grace, right? And we see that all over the place in our churches today. Everybody wants to add works to grace because grace seems impossible. Like, we don't, well, we don't have to do anything? No, you don't have to do anything. Just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't have to earn my salvation? No, you don't have to earn your salvation. There's no works that you can do to earn your salvation. And so Paul refuted what these Judaizers were saying in the strongest possible terms as he comes into Galatians chapter 2. And here's what he said in verse 16. This is the earliest gospel presentation in writing that we have from Paul because this is most likely Paul's first uh, biblical letter. He says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. That's the gospel, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters. It's, it's very, very simple. And Paul's trying to say it's not works, it's by faith. Justification is our right standing before God. It's a judicial term. That, that means we are declared not guilty. We are guilty, of course. We know that. We're guilty of the sin that we have committed in our lives. But yet God declares us not guilty. He looks at us as if we have never sinned. How is he able to do that? Well, God imputes to us. Impute is a fancy word, which means he gives to us. He attributes to us. He clothes us in Jesus's righteousness, the righteousness that he has, even though we are not righteous. And how do we get this justification? It's not by the works of the law, but it's by faith in Jesus Christ. It's that simple. Faith in Jesus Christ, because by the works of the law, no one is justified. You can't earn salvation no matter what you do. You can only be declared justified by your faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only way to get there, but these Jews are traveling around through these Galatian churches saying that that's not the way, and they were distorting the gospel. And this tells us as clearly as any passage I can think of in the New Testament about how uh, crucial it is to maintain uh, sound doctrine. Uh, I wrote this week uh, about Union Seminary and how it has abandoned uh, some of the essential tenets of the Christian faith. Uh, you don't have to hold to inerrancy of the Bible. You don't have to hold to salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Uh, and, and so now more than ever, we have to be aware of these modern Judaizers who are entering into our seminaries and entering into our churches uh, and distorting the gospel. 
Uh, many of you have experienced this in churches that you've come from. Maybe you came from a church that used to teach sound doctrine, but now it's become a liberal church, or they espouse something called progressive Christianity or new age Christianity. And what all of these churches have in common is that they have abandoned the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. So as a church, we have to guard our doctrine. But secondly, we also have to remember that we must properly instruct new believers. It's vitally important for new believers to get into a Bible teaching church, to be mentored by more mature Christians, and to be taught how to read the Bible. Uh, apparently, even these elders who had been appointed in these churches were not able to keep heresy from entering into this church. And Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians to correct the false doctrine that was being taught. And then on his second missionary journey and on his third missionary journey, he went back to these very churches again to strengthen them, to encourage them, to teach them. And that's how you make disciples. You have to spend time with them. You have to teach them. You have to answer their questions. You have to love on them. You have to be with them. Uh, and that's what Paul did on those next two missionary journeys that we'll study in the coming weeks. But before we get to those next missionary journeys, uh, the church in Jerusalem was going to have to address this all-important question. What about circumcision? What about the law? Uh, well, we'll study that next week. But for now, uh, I want to talk about some lessons that we can learn, not just from this particular passage, but the whole first missionary journey as we look at it, the, the totality of Acts chapter 13 and 14. Uh, here's the first thing I see. We need to find a spiritual companion. Paul never went anywhere without one. On the first missionary journey, he traveled uh, with Barnabas. On the second missionary journey, he traveled with, with Silas. Life is hard. Ministry is hard. Uh, in the words of Bill Withers, we all need somebody to to lean on. That's right. We all need somebody to lean on. Uh, if you don't have a spiritual companion, pray that the Lord would bring somebody into your life who would be a spiritual companion, somebody who would be willing to share your burdens and that, and that you could share their burdens with. Uh, find a spiritual companion. This Christian life is not meant to be lived in isolation. Secondly, ask how the Holy Spirit can use you. You know, four times on this first missionary journey, Luke emphasized that it was the Holy Spirit doing the work. The Holy Spirit set them aside, and then the Holy Spirit sent them, and then two other times we're told that the Holy Spirit was continually filling Paul and Barnabas as they went about their journeys. Uh, and as Paul and Barnabas stayed attuned to the power of the Holy Spirit, they continued to be empowered for greater ministry and greater persecutions. Remember, we talked about the escalation of the persecution as they continued on this missionary journey. Uh, the Holy Spirit empowered them, and he does the same for us if we are willing to be used by him. The Holy Spirit can't force us to tap into his power, but there's no greater blessing than to be given a task by God that is impossible for us to accomplish in our own power, but yet to tap into the Holy Spirit and by faith and obedience to accomplish the thing that God has asked that we do. He might use you to resolve a family conflict, a work conflict. He might have a role for you in this church or in some other mission. Uh, we have no idea. It could be anything. Uh, think about Paul and Barnabas. They traveled through the pagan world 
who has no knowledge of God, and they're making Christians out of them. That is absolutely, utterly, totally radical in the first century. So it's, it's just hard to comprehend how radical that was. And so who can limit what God might do if we would ask? Let the Holy Spirit that you are willing to be used and then listen for his prompting. And finally, God can use your apparent failures. Think about Paul and Barnabas. They're traveling through Asia Minor, being persecuted all along the way. Uh, he was uh, barely avoided persecution in Pisidian Antioch, barely avoided stoning in Iconium, and was stoned in Lystra. These might seem like failures to Paul, right? He's running from city to city, but these were all planned by God so that Paul would move from city to city, planting seeds and watering it as he went. So uh, don't be discouraged if you come across some apparent failure in your life. That failure may be the very thing that God is using to spread seed and take the gospel to places and in ways that you had never dreamed uh, in your own imagination. Uh, God is at work, even if it doesn't seem so. Uh, I can think of Paul uh, laying on the ground with people raising stones and firing them at Paul, thinking, you know, God, uh, I'm not sure you're at work here anymore, right? You could think that if you were Paul. But what does Paul do? He gets up, goes back into the city, makes more disciples, goes to Derby, makes more disciples, goes back across the very cities that he was in, making more disciples. Uh, Paul learned on this first journey what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He said, when, when I am weak, then I am strong because of the power of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit who lives in him. So God is bigger than your failures. So ask God to use failures for his greater glory. Find a spiritual companion. Ask the Holy Spirit how he can use you and let God use your apparent failures for his glory. Let's pray. Lord God, this whole first missionary journey is really a microcosm of the Christian life. We may not ever suffer or be persecuted like Paul suffered, but what Paul shows us is that there is suffering in the Christian life. And anyone who denies that there is suffering in the Christian life may not be walking in the Christian life like you would like them to. Lord, as, as we follow Paul now throughout these missionary journeys, help us to understand that suffering is a part of the Christian life. And yet, we rejoice in suffering because there are so many ways that you use it for your greater glory, Lord. And as we go from here, Lord, there may be uh, people in our very congregation here who are being persecuted by their families or by their friends for their faith. I pray, Lord, that you would use those persecutions uh, to help them spread the gospel, whether it's through the people who are persecuting them or uh, they've decided that uh, they need to go somewhere else and spread the seed, Lord. I just pray that however you would use them, that they would be uh, encouraged and strengthened by uh, Paul's obstacles and how persistent he was, and that, Lord, we would not give up in the face of difficulty, that we would continue on, even though it's more difficult than we would like it to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen.